so while I get the fun uh, job of preaching that passage, I'm glad that Maria shared in reading it, which was nice. Um, it's, a, it's, it's so interesting. We come to passages like this in the Bible. I think a lot of times we ask ourselves, you know, what in the world am I supposed to get out of this? And maybe if you, if you have kids, you're like, are they old enough to read the Bible? <laughs> you know? Um, but let me, let me tell you a, a little story. There, are, there is a, a people, and there is an enemy on the horizon that will ruin them. The men are tasked with protecting people, their families. They are rightfully given this job to protect their families, but they fail. And everything would be ruined if not for a courageous woman who takes it upon herself and though through deceitful means her bravery allows her to lay her life on the line such that she rescues everyone. This is why Mulan is the best Disney princess. But it's also why, it's also why when we read the Gospel of Matthew, and the genealogy of Jesus, and we see Tamar's name in the genealogy. We know why. You see, Mulan was not the first to do it. Tamar comes, and through deceit and <laughs> shady means, just say it like that for now. I'm not going to be able to avoid all the uh, spicy words in this text, though. So, uh, We see that once again... A woman is able to, despite the failure of all the men around her, through her bravery and courage, be used to save everyone. This is the, the underlying story of Tamar, that we don't know its fulfillment until far in the future. And it's strange, too, because we come to this passage, and it's, it's like plopped down in the middle of a much larger story about Joseph. Or at least that's what we think. Chapter 37, we see that uh, Joseph's story really starts to take off as he has these dreams. And the dreams offend his brothers, so much so that they plan to kill him. And then they end up not killing him, they sell him into slavery. And if you remember, then, if you know Joseph's story, there's a whole musical about it that can give you a good summary. Not a good summary, a general summary. Um... He's sent to Egypt as a slave, okay? And through a crazy turn of events, he, he rises to power. Actually, first he goes to prison, then he rises to power. See, I'm going to finish the book of Genesis this morning. We'll be in a new book next week. Um, yeah, Jeremy didn't know what he was doing when he said, yes, so let me preach. Okay. And we, we can think, because the last, you know, 14, 15 chapters of Genesis are all about Joseph's story, that it's very strange then that Joseph gets sent to Egypt and we get this meanwhile detour into this really strange story about Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar. But here we are. And the reason we get it, the more we look into this passage, I think the more we find just how important this passage is. Just how important this piece of the story is. It's not really a detour. 
the writer of Genesis didn't get sidetracked with like, oh, look at this scandalous thing. I want to make sure to keep this in here. This is good clickbait. Keep them interested in my story. Now, it matters in the whole of redemptive history, but we'll see that in this passage. Here's what we're going to do today. Because this, because this chapter of the Bible is the way that it is, I really struggled with how to preach it. Here's what we're going to do. Okay, so some, um, we're going to start with context. Then I'm going to give you all of my application. Then we're going to talk about a unique social law that if we don't talk about it, it's going to be really, really, really hard to understand the passage and what's going on. And then we're going to work our way through the passage. Buckle up. Here we go. Okay. First, context. So we see uh, in, the, in, the, in the passages leading up to this, Jacob, right, this trickster steals the birthright from Esau, goes through all these crazy things. He ends up marrying Leah and Rachel. He loves Rachel more. We know this. Leah's offspring are many, Rachel's few. And Joseph has a, a special spot in Jacob's heart because he is Rachel's firstborn son. Now this leads to some hatred, both between Leah and Rachel, for obvious reasons, but also between Leah's children and Rachel's children. So that when Joseph tells about this dream of his brothers bowing down to him, that's not like the, that's, that's like the last straw. But it's not the first thing that made them hate him. He was the favorite son of Joseph. And Judah is introduced before chapter 38. And all that we know about Judah is, is bad. He's horrible, right? He's jealous of his brother Joseph. He doesn't like his brother Joseph. It's Judah who in chapter 37 says, you know what, we can make money off this. Let's sell him into slavery. And then Judah takes his brothers back and they present Jacob with his robe, with Joseph's colorful jacket, dipped in goat's blood so that Jacob would think that his son had died. This is what we know of Judah so far. Now, all of the application for this passage. The first, I'm going to give you five truths. The first truth, your greatest problem, your greatest problem is not sin out there. It's not other people's wrongdoing. It may feel like it sometimes because other people can really make our life miserable. But, that is, but their sin is not our greatest problem. A lot of us treat the scriptures like a magnifying glass. We hold it up and we look through it to see other people's sin as much bigger than they are. The Bible is meant to function more as a mirror, which shows us our own sin, which is much bigger than we'd like to admit. Mulan, Disney princess, is the best because she understands her own flaws. She sings early in, the, early in the movie. She says, I will never pass for the perfect bride or the perfect daughter. Can it be I'm not meant to play this part? Now I see that if I were truly to be myself, I would break my family's heart. She understands, she understands her flaws, that she's not this perfect character. So often, we read the Bible in the opposite way, where we look for the hero of the story and we try to find out how they resemble us in some way. Or how we might try a little harder to resemble them. The famed preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, If any man thinks ill of you, do not get angry with him. 
you're far worse than he thinks you are. He goes on to say, if any man falsely accuses you, it's not true. Don't be mad at him. Because if he was to accuse you of the things you're actually guilty about, you'd be worse off. He continues on, he says, if you were to have your moral picture painted and it was ugly, be satisfied. For if they added a few more black splotches, it would be closer to the truth. Judah's problem in chapter 37, so he thinks, is Joseph. And as we dive into chapter 38, he's going to think his problem is Tamar. It is not. And our greatest problem is not sin out there. That's truth number one. Truth number two. Our greatest hope is not self-improvement. It's not our own ability to be moral. If we can admit that we are as sinful as we truly are, we will see that this must obviously be the case, that we cannot put our hope in ourselves and we shouldn't put our hope in ourselves. The Bible is not an inspirational book filled with moral people that we should try to imitate. Let me say that again. The Bible is not an inspirational book filled with moral people for us to imitate. You should read your Bible, but you should read it rightly, okay? When you have your time with the Lord in the Word, not if, when, okay? That's another application, different sermon. When you have your time with the Lord and you come to this text and you look at it primarily as the route for you to become a better person or have a better life, you are misunderstanding the, the Bible because that's not what it's ultimately about especially in the Old Testament. And so often, we come to this and we're like, oh, I want to be like David to defeat the Goliaths in my life, right? I want to be brave like him. Then I can defeat the Goliaths. I want to be wise like Solomon. And then I'll grow old and rich and famous. This is not the purpose of the text. And this is not an accurate view of their, the people in the Bible's character. If your great hope is to be good enough to save yourself, to kind of shine yourself up and buff out the scratches and get rid of the dents, reading the Bible, looking for ways to be a better person is not going to take care of that for you. But we do this. We read the Bible as if it's going to improve how good we are because we treat salvation like a relay race where we run as far as we can and then once we're tired, we hand the baton to God to finish it for us. That is not how salvation works. We tripped at the starting gate and fell backwards, okay? It carries us the entire way. We do not move the baton one centimeter toward our own salvation, relying on our goodness. So, number one, our greatest problem is not the sin out there. Number two, Greatest hope is not to rely on our own ability for self-improvement or to see ourselves as the hero in the story. Number three, and I've already gotten into this a little bit, but we need to apply these two truths into how we read the Bible. What about Abraham? Wasn't he good? Wasn't he, wasn't he faithful? What about Hebrews 11? It talks about all these people who were, you know, aren't they like, don't we call it the hall of, hall of faith? You know, they're heroes. The thing that's listed as being good about them is their faith in God's goodness, not in their own goodness. Okay? So 
when we come to the Bible, we have to stop pretending that having good morals or being a good person is good enough to save ourselves. And we need to stop teaching our children the Bible in this way. It's a particular application for parents and those who will be parents. So many children's Bibles and children's curriculum in Sunday school is let's be like this hero of the Bible. What you're telling your children then is that their salvation is built upon their own ability to be good. But inherently that will fail them. It's a fundamental mistake of parenting and in our own hearts. Let me give an illustration. Okay, I was in the car. Amanda got them, got the twins, um, a Bible music CD. And I was like, oh boy, here we go again. Because the song starts and it's about the Ten Commandments. And it's about like all these monsters like Frankenstein and Dracula are singing about the Ten Commandments. It's, it's catchy. But I'm like, oh man, this is just going to be another like pull yourself up by your bootstraps type Christian curriculum. But the song goes, the Ten Commandments, no one can keep them all. The Ten Commandments, that's why we need a Savior. And I was like, what? I was like, yeah, this is amazing. Yeah, turn it up. We're listening to this one over and over again. Because this is how the Bible functions as a mirror to our souls. It says, do these things, and we should. It says, this is right and this is wrong. Be moral, don't be immoral. And we should be moral and not immoral. But in doing so, every time it tells us how we should be, it's also telling us what we need, which is a Savior. Because every time it tells us how we should be, if we honestly look at ourselves, you have to wonder if you ever measure up to any of those commands, don't you? If you're honest. Four. God is always good. And always faithful, no matter the circumstances of your life, at any and every moment. He has not gone one second, one minute, one hour, forgetting about your needs or ignoring your pain. You have not slipped his mind. He is good and he is faithful. And no matter how much it's true that our greatest problem is not out there, it's in here. His promises stand because his faithfulness does not rely on our faithfulness. Number five, when we face the reality of our great need and the reality of God's goodness, that's when we're transformed. But not apart from that. That's all my application. Now, a social law that's important for us to know. It's called the Leveret Law. And then we'll dive into the text. I have this thing. I time how long Jeremy's introductions are, and then I make fun of him because they are too long. And uh, I'm just, this is longer than he's ever gone. Okay. <laughs> One last thing. The lever at marriage. Okay, so built into their society at the time was the idea that if a woman was widowed, if her husband died, her husband's family's household would provide a brother, her brother-in-law, to fulfill the duties of her husband, to take her as a wife, to be able to produce offspring. Now this function to continue to protect and provide for the woman who would have been very vulnerable and economically distressed as well. Built into God's people was a specific care for women. A specific care for vulnerable, economically distressed women. Called the lever at marriage. 
So when we come to this passage and we see that Tamar is to get this son from Judah when her husband dies, who is Judah's other son, this is what's going on. Judah has an obligation. Tamar's obligation is to continue to be part of the household of Judah. Judah's obligation in return is to provide her a husband from one of his other sons. This is what's going on. The woman was typically dependent for provision and protection. This is how we would make sure that she was okay was through this elaborate marriage situation. Now, all the women in the room thinking about their husband's brothers and whether or not they'd be a good husband. I don't know. You can mull it over. See where you would shape up if you were lived in the time of Genesis. But this is what's going on in Genesis chapter 38. Now let's dive into the text. Before we do, let me pray for us. Lord, as you allow us to know more about you through your word, would that knowledge go beyond just our brains and into our hearts? Transform us. Even in passages that are hard, give us a better sense of your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we dive in. Chapter 38, I'm going to start in verse 6. Judah takes a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. So Tamar first marries Ur. Ur is put to death by the Lord because he's so wicked. Keep in mind at this time, Tamar, throughout the whole narrative of Genesis 38, is probably a teenager. Throughout the whole narrative. She's young, maybe 14 or 15 when she gets married. It's a custom of the day. Her first husband was put to death because he was so evil. That is amazing because Judah is not put to death and he's pretty evil, right? We see a lot of people not put to death because despite the fact that they're very evil. But Ur, he was evil. The Lord puts him to death. So Judah decides he's going to fulfill the Leveret law, Right? And he will provide his second son, Onan, for Tamar. He says, go into your brother's wife, perform the duty of a brother-in-law, raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan was a little bit like his dad. Selfish and self-righteous. He knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would weigh semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked, and the Lord put him to death. So now you have Tamar, this poor teenage girl, has gone through two husbands that have died because they were so wicked. And this is where the story really picks up. It's also where we should make fun of Jeremy for giving me this passage to preach. Not doing it himself. Verse 11 is such a key verse to understanding this passage. Judah says to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, he says, Remain a widow in your father's house. He sends her back to her father's house, right, for protection and provision until Shelah, my son, grows up. Shelah is obviously too young to be married at this point, so this is what Judah says. Now, Judah seems like maybe he's turned a corner. He's actually going to fulfill his duty in some way, except until we read the second half of the verse. He feared that Shelah would die like his brother's. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now he has no inclination to fulfill his promise. He's afraid that if Shelah marries Tamar, he will die. He thinks, listen, he thinks that his son's deaths were Tamar's fault. 
which is why he's unwilling to let Shelah marry her. He blames their wickedness on this poor young girl. And so he lies to her, and he sends her away, just like he sent away Joseph. Here's this old movie, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And when the person uh, was writing it, was writing it, he was studying the life of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, who were actual outlaws in the West. And there's a story about Butch Cassidy where he gets caught robbing a bank, okay? And he goes before the judge, and he's super charismatic, and everyone likes him. And the judge says to Butch, he says, if you promise to never rob a bank again, I'll let you free. And Butch Cassidy says, all right, judge, I'm not going to lie to you. I can't promise that. It's like, I'm definitely going to rob another bank. Okay, well. But everyone likes him. The judge says, okay, look. Look, thank you for being honest. How about we make a deal where you don't rob any more banks in Wyoming, and then we let you go? And Butch Cassidy agrees to the deal. Of course, he would later go back and rob more banks in Wyoming. But the point is, man, how often are we comfortable with evil as long as it's out there? How often are we willing to be like, you know, that's not great, but it's not in my neighborhood. Or injustice. Sin. We should keep it at arm's distance. And this is what Judah thinks he's doing when he sends Joseph to Egypt. Yeah, Joseph's a problem for him. I just keep him at arm's distance. Let's keep those problems away rather than come face to face with what is actually going on. And so he sends Tamar to live with her father-in-law with no sense that he's going to actually fulfill this, this law. And then we come to the next section. This is where things really start to heat up. And we see double standards emerge in the life of Judah. In the course of time, the wife of Judah... Shua's daughter died. Judah's, Judah's wife died, and he decides he's going to go up to Timnah. It's another town nearby. Tamar catches wind that this is where Judah's headed. And we know that uh, Shelah has grown up at this time. Verse 14, it tells us that Shelah has grown up, and she had not been given him to marriage. So here's what happens. Because Judah says to Tamar, he says, Remain a widow in your father's house. And because Judah refuses to give Shelah to her in marriage, he is ultimately making the decision that she will be barren and alone, that her life is a dead end from here on out. He doesn't release her to marry someone else. He says, remain a widow and wait for Shelah. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. He says, you are going to be barren. There is no hope for your future. You will be economically distressed. You will be vulnerable, particularly when your father dies. This is what Judah does to her. It is unjust. And Judah goes up to Timnah, Tamar. She knows what's happening now. Shayla's old enough, and yet they're still not married. And she takes matters into her own hands. She hatches a plan. She hatches a plan. Everybody in Genesis is always making plans. Here's her plan. She goes to the side of the road at the entrance to the town where she knows Judah's going. She takes off her widow's clothing and covers herself up so her face is covered. Not the first time in Genesis we've seen hidden identities playing a role. And she stands by the side of the road, and sure enough, Judah thinks she's a prostitute. He goes to her, he asks her, propositions her. They make a deal. He gives her 
his seal and cord and, and staff, and they do what they do. Now, how does Tamar know that Judah will purchase a prostitute for himself? When Judah says to Tamar, you must remain a widow in your father's house, he's saying to her, you cannot have sex. Outside of marriage, wait for Shelah. Judah, on the other hand, does not apply the same morality to himself. He has sex whenever he wants. In this case, with a prostitute on the side of the road. And this is another double standard. The first double standard is that Judah demands that she fulfill her obligation for the lever law by remaining a widow. And he has no plans to fulfill his obligation. The second double standard has to do with sexual morality, which he demands of others and not of himself. And this hypocrisy is a great sin. We will see how great it is in the coming verses. All right, let's keep going. Judah impregnates his daughter-in-law. He finds out that Tamar's pregnant. And he says, in two, it's only two words in the Hebrew, take, burn. Take her, burn her. It's incredibly cruel and harsh. He finds out that she's committed this sexually immoral deed of which he has as well and immediately condemns her. As she's coming to be brought out to be burned to death for her sin, she sends him the cord and the seal and the staff. And now Judah receives them, and all of a sudden, it's not a magnifying glass anymore about how big Tamar's sin was. It's a mirror. The sin is his to bear. The punishment is his to bear. Judah identifies them, and he says, she is more righteous than I. Just last chapter, just like 20 verses before this happens, 30 verses before this happens, he goes to Jacob with a garment, and he says, identify these, Joseph's bloody jacket. And now he's sent a seal, a cord, and a staff. Identify these. In the first instance, he's sinning, right? He's saying, look, look what's happening. It's not true. Now the truth hits him in the face. And he sees that Judah, that, and he says, uh, Tamar is more righteous than I. Because she keeps receipts. She keeps receipts. Judah comes to actually see his own guilt. This is important. Why do you see, why do you see the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? When all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Judah had done her a great injustice. He had sent her away barren for a life of poverty and vulnerability and distress. He had all the power in the situation to make things right, and yet he refused. Only to please himself and to help others. This is a grave sin. 
So when he identifies these things, it dawns on Judah just how self-destructive his self-righteousness and selfishness is. Here's his response. She is more righteous than I. What do we do with that? You read this passage. What do you do with that? Was Tamar righteous to prostitute herself in order to get pregnant? No. This is why we need to read the Bible carefully. Because it nuances it. She is more righteous, more righteous than I. Amanda and I were talking the other day about sin. She said, sin is sin, right? I was like, well, yeah, sin is sin. But sin comes with different consequences. There are different levels to sin. Some sin is worse than other sin. The Bible talks about some sin being worse than other sin. Now, all sin is sin in the sense that any one sin, the result is death, separation from God. The wages of sin is death. Not the wages of many sin, not the wages of these particular sins. All sin results in separation from God and, and death. But not all sin is the same. So we see sexual sins in particular are, are bad because they're sins against the body, against the temple where the Holy Spirit resides. Sins of murder are bad. They are sins against the temple. They are sins against Imago Dei. So murder as a greater sin. In this case, we see that Judah identifies that his sin of having power and using it to take advantage, his sin of his double standards and his hypocrisy, his sexual immorality, and his self-righteousness was the greater sin than Tamar's. She is more righteous than I. For I did not give her my son, Shelah. Let me tell you this, friends. Pride makes it entirely impossible to be merciful. Pride makes it so difficult to be merciful. Judah, sitting back, lounging in his tent, hears of Tamar's indiscretions, take, burn. Until he realizes that his sin is worse. She's not burned. What she did didn't change, right? That she had had sex outside of marriage, that she was immoral, that fact did not change when he saw his seal and his cord. And yet she lives. Pride makes it entirely difficult to be merciful. But he's been humbled. It is really painful to face your own sin. When is the last time you took a stock of the sinfulness of your heart? Really, really. Not just in like, oh, it's, it's communion time. I'm going to apologize for the things that I did this week. The things that come to mind in the 10 seconds before we take the bread and eat the wine. When's the last time you actually said, look at my heart, my thoughts, my desires, my sins, the way I talk about other people, the way that I, the way that I think about other people. It's painful to take the plank out of your own eye. It's much easier to be worried about the specks in each other's eyes, isn't it? It's much more comfortable. It's, it's, it's nice. I like pointing out the specks in other people's eyes. I don't so much like when I have to worry about my own. But letting that disease of self-righteousness grow in you is far more painful than the amputation of it. It's far more deadly, ultimately. 
Remember, Judah's father has two wives, Leah and Rachel. They don't like each other. You know, Leah's offspring doesn't like Rachel's offspring. And yet, this is where we see Judah changed when he comes face to face with his own sin. How do we know he's changed? We know in a couple ways. Number one, he does not punish Tamar. He gives her mercy. Number two, he does not sleep with her again. He learns righteousness from her. Number three, this is where I finish the book of Genesis and we can start a new one next week. Joseph goes to Egypt, goes to jail, interprets the king's dreams. I'm really spoiling it for you all. Okay. Rises to power. There's a famine in the land, but Joseph, because he's interpreted these dreams, he was able to save the people from the famine. His brothers are starving, including Judah, and they come looking for food. He sends them back. He says, is this all the brothers? No, it's not all the brothers. There's Benjamin. You know, Benjamin, Rachel's other son besides Joseph. But we can't take Benjamin. He's like, you got to bring Benjamin. Okay. So they bring Benjamin to Joseph. And you know this part of the story? Joseph hides a cup, more, more deceitfulness, hides a cup in Benjamin's sack. And he's like, how could you do this to me? Like, I'm providing for your family. How could you betray me like this? Remember, Benjamin is Rachel's son. Judah is Leah's son. And what does Judah do in that moment when he realizes that Joseph is going to hold Benjamin as a slave in Egypt, that he won't be able to return this beloved son of his old father, Jacob? All throughout these chapters, Judah has just been, it's your fault. It's your fault my son died. It's your fault I have problems in our family. Send them away. Benjamin, look at this. This works out great for him. Now Rachel has no sons. It's all Leah's sons. This is an opportunity of a lifetime for Judah. But Judah is different. And Judah offers himself in place of Benjamin. Even though he was innocent. Judah was guilty these other times. And yet he places the blame on others. But now when we come to the end of, end of Genesis, Judah looks Joseph in the eye, doesn't realize it's his brother, says, don't take Benjamin, take me. He's changed because he's now amputated the self-righteousness from his own heart. It's no longer about his own pride. He can think of others. He can sacrifice himself even though he didn't steal the cup. If you want to be transformed, you can't take your sin lightly. You can't just get on with it. Sanctification is not just like waiting back for God to change us face your own sin and then the reality is that we need more than just recognizing our own sin we also still need someone to save us which is why when we read the bible it's not just that it's not about our goodness and becoming better it's about god's goodness being perfect verse 27 the end of the passage and then i'll wrap up when the time of her labor came there were twins in the womb and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What breach have you made for yourself? Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. 
the book of Genesis is really repetitive. It's cyclical. It keeps tying in these threads together. It's hard to like untangle them as separate stories, which we often do. And they're all tied together. Genesis 3, the fall happens, and Eve receives this promise that she will have an offspring, and her offspring will crush the serpent's head. Her offspring will make things right. Chapter 4, verse 1, she has an offspring. And you imagine the hope that she has, that God has fulfilled his promise to her to make things right. And her offspring's name was Cain. And Cain murdered her second offspring. And you have to wonder in that moment if Eve started to doubt the promises of God. And sometimes when we go through suffering, and when we go through pain, and when we recognize our own sin, we can doubt the promises of God. I know this is risky. I'm going to try for my third Mulan reference in one sermon. In early on in the movie, Mulan's grandma, she's got a lucky cricket. At least she wants to think it's a lucky cricket, so she tests it. She tests it by blindfolding herself and walking across a six-lane Chinese highway of carts and buggies and horses. And as she does it, there's just like chaos around her, right? Everyone's stopping to avoid hitting this old woman who's walking across the street holding a cricket in her hand while she's blindfolded. And it's just like everything is just being destroyed around her. This chaos and it's horrible. And she makes it to the other side and she takes off her, her uh, blindfold and she says, you are a lucky cricket. You are. And this is what it's like to see this promise of Genesis 3 try to make its way through the rest of the book. Just chaos all around. Destruction all around. But it's not luck that gets it there. It's God's faithfulness to fulfill his promise to his people. And when we see Perez, we look at the genealogy of Jesus. There's Perez. There's Tamar. There's Judah. Look at this story. These people are in the line of Jesus. It's wild. It's wild. It really is crazy. But it shows that God is faithful to fulfill his promise to us. And it doesn't rely on our own goodness and our own faithfulness and our own ability to be good moral people. Let me finish with this. The reason that God can fulfill his promises to us and he can save us is because he's not like Judah. God is not like Judah. Judah comes to the conclusion it's too too much to ask to save Tamar. Too risky. She's too much trouble. God could come to the same conclusion about us. Judah sends his abandoned vulnerable widow away so he can preserve his son from death. He withholds his son, not God. God loves the widow so much that he sends his only son to die for her. Judah places the blame for his own sin on the widow. It's her fault that my sons are dying. She committed this sexual deed. Take her, burn her, not Jesus. He loves the widow so much that he takes her sin, which is very real, and puts it upon himself even though he's innocent. See, Jesus is the only one who can say that the problem is out there. He brings the problem on himself. He's the only one who can fix it. This is how God keeps his promise. This is how God crushes the serpent. He does what Judah refuses to do. He gives up his position and his power to rescue the widowed bride, the church. He saves us despite our immorality, despite our very worst sins and the brokenness of our world, our most evil thoughts, our most selfish hearts, our self-righteousness, all the planks in our eyes. 
He cares so much about us that he dies for us. We're going to head into a time of communion now. But before we do that, we should confess. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Listen to that. That is a promise. And it is a promise that we know from this story and from the rest of Scripture that God will keep, keep to us, that he will forgive us, not because we're so good, but because he's so good and he's so faithful. I'm going to pause now and give us a couple minutes to reflect and to confess on our own. The reality of our own sin, knowing that God is faithful and just to keep his promise to forgive us.